It really is such a pleasure to be here. I love Fredericksburg, Texas. My parents lived here for 12 years, and uh, during those 12 years, I really became a, a big fan of this town, and I'm, I'm, I really am so, so grateful to be here and to, to drive its streets again and see some old friends that I have here in this town. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. We're, we're here to celebrate Thanksgiving, but everybody who celebrates Thanksgiving is also aware of their troubles. And this passage of scripture that Max read just a few moments ago is about a world of trouble. And what you find in that passage is a father in a world of trouble and a, a son so afflicted uh, by trouble in his life because of the devil. You have a, you have a father crying out for a son and, and, and you have a father who brings his son first to the disciples and it's a failure. And then he brings his son to Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what this text is all about. And I want us to consider uh, this morning in the midst of this this great day of thanksgiving, uh, the whole matter of, of troubles that really cause our thanksgiving in this passage is, is like that. It's a passage to increase our faith. It's a passage to challenge us, to help us think through the exercising of our faith, its power or its impotence in the world. And what, what is so helpful about this passage is that heeding, heeding the words of Jesus Christ that are here in this passage will increase your work in, the, in this generation. Uh, the glory of God in your own life, the glory of God working through your family, the glory of God even working in this church and even in this town. That's what this passage is about. And it's, it's such a pivotal text. It's about, it's about faith. We know, that, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so this morning, we're considering faith and trouble and how you relate to all the, the difficulties that you have in your life. So this morning, while we're, while we're counting our blessings, I also want you to count your troubles. Count your troubles. Name them one by one. Count your many troubles and see what God is doing through your troubles. And I'm, I'm serious about that. I, in this day of Thanksgiving, I think it's also appropriate... Uh, to count your troubles and to name them, uh, to, to, to analyze them and to ask yourself, how, how am I relating to the troubles in my life? Uh, my concerns, my fears, you know, uh, am I applying faith to my troubles that are upon me? Am I, am I, am I weak before the waves or am I strong? Am I, am I caving in to all of my concerns? Am I freezing in the face of my fears? Am I paralyzed by my difficulties? Those are the things I really want us to consider because this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 17 is, is about trouble, the trouble of a father and a son. Now, this passage of Scripture, which I hope you have open before you in Matthew chapter 17, is, is, is a very powerful text. And I'll, I'll just bear my soul before you for a minute. This passage of Scripture has so challenged me and, and helped me, and it's confronted me, and it's convicted me about what I have not done in so many situations in my life. And I pray that this text will help you It'll, the way that it's, be, that it's helping me as well. Now, I want to give you a number of observations about this passage of Scripture. And, and the first is that it's a, it's, it's a critical story in the life of Jesus. All, all of the synoptic gospel writers document this story, but they all emphasize different things when they write about it. And, you know, Mark, Mark emphasizes the whole human drama, the relationships, the pains, the sorrows, the failures. He just, he just you know, buries himself into the, the human part of the suffering. While, while Luke... Uh, uh, Luke emphasizes the power of God over the devil, that he just cast the devil in the place that he ought to be. And, and here, though, Matthew emphasizes 
the importance of faith. And he focuses in on a, on a very particular matter of our faith and how that relates to the troubles that we are going to encounter. Uh, I, I'm confident there are so many of you today, you're not in a time of trouble at all. You're in a, you're in a time of ease. It's, it's a blessing that God gives us those times. And uh, at times of peace, times of prosperity, maybe that's you. Maybe you don't have any troubles right now. Guess what? There's a trouble around the corner. There's one coming. Because God does not leave his saints without troubles. And, and so I, th- this passage here is so critical. And it, 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 as, as we deal with Matthew's understanding of this, we're dealing about the, the intersection of faith and trouble and anticipating it. It's, it's, um, it's also, secondly, our Lord, our Lord is teaching us about how to deal with really extreme problems. And uh, the heart of the passage is, is found by, by looking at a contrast in verse 15. That, that this young boy was severely demonized. It was an extreme problem. And in Jesus, in verse 21, he says, this kind, this kind does not come out, but by prayer and fasting. And so there, there are kinds of troubles that are so severe. They're so heartbreaking. They're so pernicious. They're so impossible for us to deal with. That's what this passage is about. And it helps us to see the degrees of problems that there are in our lives. He gives us great troubles and he gives us smaller troubles as well. And, and, and this passage is teaching us how to deal with, with really extreme and trying circumstances. Th- this circumstance uh, centers around a problem in a son's life. And you, I know there are many parents here. And you, you, you may be dealing with very, very pernicious, difficult problems with your, maybe your son. Maybe it's your daughter. But, but you can relate with this father here. And he's, the Lord Jesus is coming and teaching us how to grapple with the most difficult and pernicious problems. And, and what, what we learn about this is that there, there are degrees of troubles. And, and, and when there are great troubles, it requires great faith. And we, we ought to be ready for those times of troubles. And the big question here in this passage that I'm going to get to later is, is are you preparing yourself for the trouble ahead, for that moment of crisis when faith is needed? And then a, another observation is this, is that our Lord, the Lord in this passage is teaching us that there is, there is an unseen power at work in the world. And you, you cannot understand what's happening in your life, your friend's life, without understanding that there are spiritual forces of darkness that are operating on us and even our little children, as it says in this passage of Scripture here. And, and God here has, has placed his people on the earth to grapple with, to overcome the evil that is on the earth. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this passage of Scripture teaches us how to do that, exactly how we ought to engage our minds and our hearts, our understanding of the problems and our preparation for them, so that we would be overcoming evil with good. What a blessing it is to know that you've been called for that. There's a purpose in your life that you've been called to overcome evil with good. What a blessing it is to have such a great calling. Why were you born? Why are you alive today? Well, if you've bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and have recognized his substitutionary atonement for your sins and you're his child, then you know why you're alive. You're, you're alive to deal with the evil that's in this world. And God has placed you here for that purpose. And then another observation is this. Our, our Lord is illustrating with a very graphic story of the fallout that happens when there's a breakdown in faith in your life. When your faith is weak, it has consequences. And it reminds us of the dire straits 
we actually place our family members in when we are not ready with well-cultivated faith. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a real life and very graphic story that just shows what happens when you have allowed the world, maybe the flesh, maybe the devil, to dampen your faith and what it means, in this case, what it means for your son. So it's a very sobering story. And then another observation is that some of the the most famous statements in the Bible are attached to this scene. Uh, In Mark, uh, he records the man saying, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. It's such a common phrase that most Christians are, are aware of. And the statement, if you have faith as a mustard seed, if you say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move. And, and that phrase, this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. So it's a passage that is kind of a convergence of a lot of really powerful statements that, that, mo- that many Christians hang their lives upon, particularly in, in the midst of trouble. Now, let's dive into the text. Uh, rest your eyes on verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your, to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So this, the, the, from verses 14 to 16, you see the failure of the disciples in, in, in graphic form. And there's, there's a really very dramatic scene here because you have two groups of disciples. You have Peter, James, and John have just been on the mountain of transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've been up on the mountain seeing the glory of the Lord, so much so that Peter said, let's just stay here forever. <laughs> and, but that's not going to happen. And they've, they've come, they're, they're coming down from the mountain of glory and blessing. And then they come into this world broken by sin. And the, the other nine disciples are being, are being quizzed by the Pharisees and they're arguing about matters. And then this father brings his son who's demonized before the disciples and they have no power to deal with, that, with, his, with the demonization. And the boy continues to suffer in their midst. And the Lord Jesus comes with, with Peter, James, and John and enters this cacophony. There, there are perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands of people around the Lord Jesus Christ and this whole scene. So it's a very dramatic you know, power-packed, emotional scene with all kinds of people around. There are arguments here. There's suffering there. There's the longing of a father. There's the disciples who just came down from the Mount of Glory. And then there are the frustrated disciples who cannot deal with this problem. So that's the scene that we're dealing with here in this passage of Scripture. And so, you know, like Moses, Jesus, you know, comes down from the mountain. And what, what does he see? He sees a a world of sin. He sees brokenness, remaining broken because of lack of faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, is, I believe, very much like Moses. You know, he he came down from the mountain and and the people are singing and playing and, and worshiping their idols. And here the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he actually sees an entire generation that he says is, is perverse and, and, and unfaithful. So you, there's this very dramatic scene from the mountain to the valley and to the place where the devil is working and actually being, being overthrown. And then you see this man with the son. A man came to him kneeling down. It's, it's a remarkable moment. There's a, there's, there's a man kneeling down before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke, Luke tells us, that it was his only son. Imagine that. You know, I'm a man that just has one son. But, and I can understand what this must have meant to him. It was his only son. And you have a, you have a father now, and he's, and he's crying out for his son. 
And the Bible, the Bible is full of fathers who cry out for their sons. You know, there's, there's Job who cried out daily for his children in, in Job 1, 4 through 5. You have, you have David crying out for his son Absalom. Absalom, 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 my son, my son. The Bible is full of these dramatic scenes of fathers and sons. Fathers at their wits end crying out to God for their sons. You find David crying out uh, for his infant son that was born out of his sin through Bathsheba. You find Solomon crying out for his son in the entire book of Proverbs. You have, a, you have an entire corpus of wisdom that is dedicated to a display of a father crying out for his son, the book of Proverbs. And he says, my son, give me your heart. So this, this, this desire of fathers for the, for the holiness and the purity, for the deliverance, for the power of their son is, is all loaded into this, this passage of Scripture. In Matthew, this, the, you see also the same cry being issued for daughters. A, a ruler's daughter has died in, in, in Matthew 9, 18. And then in, in Matthew 15, there's a, a woman crying out for her, for her daughter. And, and she says, have mercy, O Lord, son of David. So you, you just have to somehow put yourself in this place if you're a father. And the whole crying out that you have you know, for your son, because that's, that's what we find here. Now, Mark 9, as I said earlier, really gives the human drama of this whole scene. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, find verse 18. And you'll see the pathos, the emotion, you know, the, the, the human element that is operating here. It's such a blessing that the gospel writers you know, give us these, these full pictures of what has happened. And here in verse 18, the father says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Then they brought him to him. And when, they, and when he saw him, Immediately, the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and he came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. Uh, The people are running the boy is convulsing. The father is crying out. And he has this, this terrible condition that's come upon him. And there, there are terrible accidents that are happening to this boy with fire and water. He, he, he most likely had burns and scars, you know, from the devil's work, you know, in his life. And this, is, this is what the work of the devil is all about. He gives you ulcers and scars and pains. He'll burn you. He'll drown you. He'll cut you. He'll make you grind your teeth. He'll throw you to the ground and he'll humiliate you in public and make a spectacle of you before your father. This is what the devil is all about. If anyone, if anyone has any doubts about the devil's plans for them, they ought to think about it here. Here you see it in very graphic form. Every little sin leads in this, in this direction. You cannot play with sin. And this is just the nature 
of the devil. And, of course, there are degrees of demonization and trouble from the devil. You, know, you, you remember the story where the Lord Jesus says, talks about the house that was cleaned and seven demons come back. And it says that it's, it's worse, it was worse than the first. It's worse. Uh, you have this Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was severely demon-possessed. You see the brutality of Satan. You see his hatred. And then one of the most amazing parts of this scene is when our Lord asks a really powerful question of the Father in, in verse 21. And he asked his Father, How long, how long is it since it happened to him? So here is, it's, it's a voice of compassion, but the answer reveals a, a really remarkable thing. He says, from a child, from a child. The devil was operating on this son since he was a child. The term most likely has to do with just after weaning of that child. So this, this, this was a very, very young child when the devil was operating on him. I think that's such a remarkable fact of life that we find here in this passage of Scripture. And then, and then you find the failure of the disciples to deal with this in verse 16. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Mark, Mark, Mark says that the Lord Jesus, that, the, that Mark says that the Pharisees, looking in on these, this scene, the Pharisees were saying, they were taunting the disciples, and they said, the disciples have no power. That's what the Pharisees were saying in this cacophonous scene where people are running and arguing and, and, and the boy foaming at the mouth. Now, I want to give you four lessons from this so far. We're not done with this passage. But I'd like to give you four things to really think about as you consider what's here. Number one, how the devil is no respecter of childhood. And he even devours the very young. We have to recognize the kind of world that we live in. We live in a spiritual world. We, we, we live in a world where the devil is actually desiring to destroy our children. And, we, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be presumptuous to think that our children are immune from this. At this point in this morning's message, approximately three minutes of the sermon was not recorded due to technical difficulties. We will now pick up where the recording resumes. The whole generation is, is faithless and perverse and they don't fast. That's what's characterizing this generation. I mean, and how about, how about our generation? Is our nation a generation that is full of prayer and fasting to destroy the works of the devil? Is that, is that the culture of this nation in this generation, this, you know, block of years that we exist in now? Or, or how, about, how about the culture of this church? Is this, is this church characterized by a culture of prayer and fasting? Is the generation alive? That's us. You're, there's actually a generation right here in this room. The people who are alive in a particular generation, in a church matter and how they're conducting themselves matters when the evil moment comes upon maybe a little boy or a little girl or a family or maybe on the town itself it matters what a generation has been doing you know every every church has a culture every every generation that's alive in a church has a particular way that it's going about life. Your family has a culture as well. 
What, what, what is the culture of your family life? Is, it, is, is the culture of your family life a culture of prayer and fasting? My experience as a father, my experience as a pastor, is that most people would rather try some child-raising technique than to pray and fast to fall on their knees, to deprive themselves of food, to be on their face, they would rather actually ask for prayer. They would rather actually read a book on child raising. I'm for books on child raising. I'm for understanding the biblical doctrine of the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. I preached many messages about that. I think it's important that we preach the whole counsel of God on this matter. But if, but if you are a kind, the kind of father and mother that all you do is rush to the next book, all you do is clamor for the next tape or, or audio recording that you, that you think might bail you out of your problem, that somehow that preacher is going to say something that is going to fix you forever and then you're going to be able to apply the technique, turn the dials, you know, jigger the program in your family and somehow everything is going to turn out all right. That's not what Jesus Christ is, is dealing with his disciples on in this passage. He's, he's talking about prayer and fasting and crying out for your children. You know, so often we reach, we reach for the medicine cabinet. We go to the internet to try to fix what's going on in our families. And we've neglected prayer and fasting. I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that as a father. I don't want to be like that. There are two terms that the Lord Jesus Christ uses for the generation. And I think it's worth inspecting them in some detail. Faithless. A faithless generation. This is, this is a generation that was not seen with the eyes of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this was a, this was a generation that was not pleasing to God. Do you remember what, what the Bible says about Enoch? His testimony was that he pleased God. And I, I believe that his pleasing of God had to do with his faith. He lived before God with such a, an earnest desire to please him. But this generation did not have faith. What about the generation here? like the generation alive right here, you know, in this building. Well, in that generation, you know, no mountains were being moved and no little boys were being delivered. What a tragic generation. What a tragic result there is in lack of faith. You know, how great they were in that generation with their religion, how great they were with their procedures and their, and, and their rules, how great they were with their activities, how great they were with their outward performances, and how poor they were with faith. Self-reliance, self-righteousness, these were the marks of that generation. They were faithless. And they were prayerless. And then they were perverted. It was a perverted generation. It was a twisted generation. Twisted out of shape. You know, strange. You just, it's, the, the word that's used, it kind of pictures a piece of pottery that's handled in a careless manner by a craftsman. And it just, it's just disfigured. It's not a very pretty throw of a pot and that it was a perverted and twisted generation and then 
the Lord says, how long will I be with you? How long will I be with this generation? And in, in, that, in that, you see his patience, you see his mercy, you see his love, but you also see the desperate condition of that generation. He says, how long, how long will I be with this generation? And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry is judging that generation. And he will finally judge it by a complete destruction of their religion as he will destroy their temple and ruin all of their worship and all of their procedures. He will put it to death because he's there judging that generation. He is there. He's separating the sheep from the goats and he's judging the generation for what it really is. And he's marking this generation by faithlessness and and, and perversion, by being twisted, kind of a pinched and truncated you know, representation of something that was supposed to be beautiful and good. You know, there's so much in Scripture about faith, and it, I, 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 I'm so tempted to just spend the rest of the time talking about faith. But then in verse 18, what we see, Jesus ends up disarming this demon. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out, of him and the child was cured from that very hour. This is this is the the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This boy was was cured and delivered instantaneously. And it just shows us there's nothing out of his reach. When the Lord Jesus Christ desires to move, nothing can stay his hand. His hand is sovereign. His hand is unstoppable. He does what he wishes in heaven and on earth. And he's, he's in the midst of causing all things to work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is omnipotent, and he, ex, and he ex, exercises his omnipotence. And then the Lord Jesus explains the way of victory. And, and in verse, verses 19 through 21, uh, you see something happen that happens so many times in the life of the disciples. They have a private conversation with Jesus. So then the disciples came to Jesus privately. So this whole scene is now done. The dust is settled. The smoke is cleared. And now it's a quiet moment. And they're, they're now looking back on what just happened. And, and they're with him privately. And the disciples say, why? Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So the heart of the matter was the littleness of their faith and that coupled with the fact that they did not involve themselves by prayer and fasting. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The Lord Jesus is looking back and he's saying, you were impotent because you didn't pray and fast. Here's a question. Hey, so when were they supposed to pray and fast? When was that supposed to happen? This boy was brought to them in the midst of this crowd. There was not a moment for fasting. What were they? Were they supposed to you know, do a speed fast? You've heard of speed dating, right? You know, where people just get them to go in really quickly and then figure out what they're going to do. Well, is there a speed fasting where you could, there, there's a difficult moment upon you and somehow you fast really fast. That doesn't happen. That's ridiculous. What Jesus, I believe, was saying is that you've not had a life of prayer and fasting. You've, your face has not been before God. You've not been beholding the face of your Father. You've, you have not been crying out to God. You've not been fasting so that when the evil moment came, you'd be ready 
He's saying they've not prepared themselves for that. He's saying that they've lived a life without connection, with crying out to God so that they would be prepared for that moment. Because maybe you're like the, that person who doesn't have any troubles right now. They're coming. And will you be ready? You will not be able to speed fast your way into being useful in a, in a dark moment. You can't just sort of become somebody that you're not. Your, your spirit, your heart, your love is, cult, is a cultivated spirit and a heart and a love. And the Lord Jesus is saying that they weren't ready because they didn't have a life of prayer and fasting before the problem. You know, you know, whenever you meet with a friend, you never, you never know what that friend's going through. You never know what difficulty or pain there is, what failure, what sorrow, what roadblock, you know, that person is, is enduring. Are you ready for that when you show up? Or did you just sort of jump in your car, drive down there, you know, listen to your favorite song, just, you know, go into the restaurant and sit down, and you're not ready at all. You're not, you're not ready to meet that brother or that sister because you, because you have not had a life of prayer and fasting. And when you're in the midst of the crowd and there's an argument going on over here and there's a desperate problem right in front of your eyes, and you've, you've not prepared yourself. You've not been before God. So you do not have anything to give in that moment. The Lord, the Lord says here that this faith that's cultivated can move mountains. Two things about moving mountains. My understanding of this passage of Scripture is that, he, that Jesus is speaking figuratively about really, really big things. We don't have a record of Jesus actually moving a mountain. We don't have a record of the disciples ever moving a mountain. In church history, you look back, and there really are no credible you know, historical documentation of Mountains actually moving from one place to another. While I believe that that a mountain can move at the prayer of a believer, I I, do, I don't see that has having happened in history. So I'm not I'm not confident that Jesus was talking about you need to just go around and start asking mountains to move. He's talking about how great a things can be moved. He's talking in relative terms. Things that are just so impossible, just part of the geography that cannot be moved by man at all. God can move them. I believe that's what he's saying. We also know that faith is so powerful. Even the littlest faith is mighty in power. Even the faith of a mustard seed can accomplish much. I want to give you some applications before we leave this passage. Question number one. Are you prepared or are you unprepared? For what? Well, I mean, are you prepared to talk to your friend? Are you prepared to go sit down with your wife and have tea? Are you prepared to deal with the sin in your child? Are, are you prepared to go sit with a parent who has a terrible problem in their family? Are you prepared to go sit with your friend who wants to divorce his wife and you're the only one standing in the way of that and you're going to throw yourself in front of that bus? Are you prepared for that? Are, are you prepared for what's coming around the corner? Take a sounding 
secondly, of your faith. Is your faith strong now or is it weak? We all go through times where our faith is weak and times when it's strong. This is a, this is a normal life of a Christian. And we ought to know the difference between the times when our faith is weak or the times when it's strong so that, we, so, that, so that we know who we are at that moment and what we need to do by crying out to God to make us ready with faith. Hey, faith overcomes the world. It moves mountains. It heals young men. It, 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 it enables the, the believer to take dominion as he's designed to do in the world. And faith applies to absolutely everything in, in our lives. And so, I mean, this, this great question, is your faith ready to meet those problems? Have you prayed? Have you fasted in preparation for the problems that are ahead? But my understanding of the doctrine of fasting is that the, the fasting in Scripture, when you see it, is not, is not something that you just do according to a calendar. It's, so, it's something that you do because there's a great need and you're preparing yourself to deal with that need. And you cry out to God in order to enter into that battle. It's not something that you schedule, but you know what? It happens when you really care. Why don't you fast? Why don't you pray? Can I just suggest that you really don't care? I'm saying that to you because that's the way it is with me. There's not, there's not enough concern. There's not enough passion. There's not, there's not enough pathos and compassion in my heart to drive me to fast and pray for that person who's suffering. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe I've just issued a false accusation to all of you. But I know for me, I don't fast because I don't care. I don't love that person enough to cry out to God. Their problems don't move me because my heart is hard. It's too hard to be moved. I care too much about myself and my meal that's coming up and my schedule and all the things that are going on in my life. And so as a result, I don't fast and I don't pray. I, 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 would, I would caution you not to go put fasting on your calendar. But put fasting on the wings of your compassion. Put your fasting on a foundation of love. Put your fasting on your desire to see the kingdom of heaven take dominion over the kingdom of darkness. Fast because you desire to overcome evil with good. That's why we should fast. I'm going to ask you some questions. What make a make a list of the most difficult situations before you that are ahead that you know about. Make a list of the people you're going to meet with and ask yourself what what you ought to do about that in terms of prayer and fasting. Uh, what what national problems need your faith? How about that one? What national problems need your faith? We have just come through an election, perhaps the most disappointing election that anybody in this room has ever endured and experienced. What national problems need your prayer and fasting? You know, it's so easy to say, oh, look at this horrible administration. But let me ask, how many of us cried out to God and prayed and fasted in the years previous to that? It's just so easy to throw your critique over the wall toward your administration. And it's an entirely different way of approaching the matter.
that you realize that you, you have been given authority from heaven and that if you really cared that much, maybe you would fast and pray about it. What local problems need your faith and your fasting? Things just happening in whatever town you live in. What, what family problems are there that need your faith and your fasting and your prayer? What, what problems going on in your church are calling, are calling for a preparation by prayer and fasting to meet them? I'm, I'm pretty confident your church is like every, every church I've ever seen, including the one that I'm a pastor of. We, there are problems. There are problems here. People problems. Moral problems, financial problems, psychological problems. There are all kinds of problems in every church. What problems in this church exist to draw you out of your selfish life to fast and to pray and to fall on your face before Almighty God? Here's another question. What faithless indolence do you accept because you're acting like a hyper-Calvinist, because you believe so much in the sovereignty of God that you do nothing to reach your hand out to the lost and pray for them? You know, what, what do you do when you're sick or a family member is sick? Do you just rush to the medicine cabinet or do you cry out to God? Are you taking prayerlessness lightly? Are you taking lightly the fact that you've not prepared yourself to meet the problems of your children? Do you take that lightly? Well, the failure in that moment where a father crying out for his son, a crowd running, religious leaders chastising, and a little boy suffering, all of this has to do with faith and the quality of nurtured faith through prayer and fasting. And so the big question is, are, are we ready? Do we have the latent power of God operating in our home? Have we prayed sufficiently for the meetings of the church? Have we been to the secret place to pray for the personal counsels that will be given in that week for our pastors, for our friends? Are, are, we, are we a people who are really prepared to meet the dark day? Have we filled our hearts with the treasuries of the kingdom of heaven? Here's what you can conclude with certainty from this passage. Lack of faith is the road to defeat. But the faith, even of a mustard seed, is a path to victory. Do we realize that without prayer... And fasting, we are impotent before the works of the devil. And any hope that we have for overcoming evil with good will be lost in the cacophony and the smoke and the fire of the moment and the failure of it. John, the apostle, said, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And I, I, want, I want to leave you with a question. And that is, do you have saving faith? It's possible, you know, that you've, you've been a person in church and you don't fast and pray because you don't have saving faith. And, and you don't, you're not really about 
the work of overcoming the world. And, and your heart's desire is not to overcome evil with good. Because you're not converted. You've been a church person. That's possible. But you also might, might be that kind of person like me who has so neglected in so many situations to be prepared. And my, my admonition and encouragement to you is recognize the connection of prayer and fasting with thanksgiving. Can you imagine what this father experienced when his boy was delivered? Can you imagine that? There's this boy scarred and charred and beat up by the devil. And now he's free. His son is free. Can you imagine the rejoicing, the thanksgiving, the feasting that went on as a result of that because of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in, in the celebration of Thanksgiving here today, what a, what, a, what a blessing it is to know that Jesus Christ has power to heal and save. And we, we can give thanks for everything that he has touched, that he has healed and saved in our lives. And he has healed and saved much. And we have so much to be thankful for. Because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And we can rejoice at the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and cry out to him that we would be ready for the evil day as he was when there was a father crying out for a son.